Well, hello, hearty souls and souls attending virtually. So good to be with you all tonight. Hey, we, we're going to try to do this through Advent. We realize we can only plan things a little bit at a time. Um, it helps us if you register, but if you forget, there's plenty of room. I think we can social distance safely. Just, just come on. We'd love to have you. These are days we won't ever forget. Go ahead, what is the good news of the gospel? With all that we have going on in our world right now, Christians are, are really to be known for the good news, for the, the message of hope in Christ. But what, what really is that message? Recently, I listened to a series of podcasts on uh, racial justice, very powerful, very well done, uh, the, the host and her guests, deep followers of Christ. But they took a, an approach to racial justice in the gospel that was different than what I'd been used to. And I, I, I think uh, the way that the, the host and her guests thought about the gospel and this conversation about racial justice was uh, best expressed by James Cone, who is the, the father of black theology. And Dr. Cohn uh, summarized the gospel like this. God in Christ is the liberator of the oppressed from social oppression and political struggle, wherein the poor recognize that their fight against poverty and injustice is the gospel of Christ. Now, that truly is part of the good news um, Start in the book of Exodus. The theme of the book of Exodus is the redemption of the people of God. And in the book of Exodus, they are redeemed from spiritual slavery, but also political slavery as well. Consider the prophets. Amos 5, we sang it or read it tonight. Let justice roll down like waters. Isaiah 11 envisions a great day when a messianic king brings in a rule that cares for the oppressed. Uh, Jesus' opening sermon in Luke 4, he says, I'm the Messiah. I'm coming to bring freedom for the oppressed. Uh, Mary's beautiful prophetic song in Luke 2 envisions a, a time when the kingdom of her son brings down the mighty and transforms political structures. So yes, that's in the Bible. If that's kind of a new idea for you, I suggest as an introduction, Tim Keller's book, Generous Justice, um, this is clearly a part of the gospel, but it's not all of the gospel. And one of the things I actually was just really smitten by this series, I listened to 17 hours and I learned so much. And, um, but at the end of it, I kept thinking, I think something's missing in how they're talking about the gospel. Well, we're we're in this story about the conversions of Peter and Cornelius. Last week, we looked at how God had to convert Peter from his racial prejudice so that he would be able to share the gospel with Cornelius. And tonight, we actually look at the conversion of Cornelius to a follower of Christ. And we talked about this two weeks ago, but I think it's helpful background to remember Cornelius as a soldier would have functioned like a police officer in Palestine. They didn't have a police department. Soldiers maintained the peace. And although Cornelius is a devout man, the reputation of these police officers was, was not good in Palestine in that day. And the, uh, the Jewish people and later the Christians often felt 
treated unfairly by uh, the soldiers, by the police. And so it, it's, it's interesting that when Peter has an opportunity to share the gospel with like the chief of police or someone who embodies the uh, oppressive power of, of their day, he doesn't really pick up on these uh, themes in the Bible about social transformation, political transformation. He actually instead makes it very personal. He talks about Cornelius's personal sins. And, and, and I want to kind of work through this for a moment, and uh, then we'll just draw some conclusions. So he starts in verse 37, and he says, you yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee after the baptism that John proclaimed. Whatever the gospel is, whatever the good news is, it is centered in the person of Jesus Christ. Whatever the gospel is, it is centered in the life and ministry and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And Peter describes in a summary Jesus' life. God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him, and we are witnesses of all he did. And three times Peter will stress this theme of, we all saw this, we had dinner with him, uh, we witnessed it, this is history. And I think we're getting a feel for what the gospel is, because it's not a myth, it's not a mindfulness practice, it's not a political party, it's a person who lived in history and revealed God. The gospel has to do with Jesus. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree, but God raised him on the third day and caused him to appear, not to all people, but to those who had been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. Now, the, the summary of the sermon we have here takes about three minutes to read. Um, certainly, Peter spoke longer than that. We get a little feel maybe for what he would have said in his letter, First Peter. Uh, here's how he understood what happened on the cross, on the tree. First Peter 2, 24. He himself bore our sins on his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you've been healed, for you were straying like sheep, but now you've returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. When Peter says that Jesus died on a tree, he was making an allusion to a verse in Deuteronomy that Paul alludes to in Galatians 3, verse 13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. And this is a part of the good news. The guilt that I bear for my sin is borne by Jesus when he hung on a tree in my behalf. And that's why I can be forgiven and restored to God's friendship. Then Peter says, Jesus commands his followers to 
testify that he is the one appointed by God to judge the living and the dead. So this idea of Jesus being the judge is is a part of the gospel too. What's that mean? Personally, it means that uh, there will be a day when every human being is evaluated. And the whole story of the gospel is that when we put our faith in Christ and trust in his work on the cross, that the basis of that evaluation is his life and his works. But there's also a corporate or social dimension to Christ judging the world. It's, it's the Bible's way of saying that one day the world will be put to rights, that one day there will be justice. And then Peter promises that based on the teaching of the prophets, everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. One of the the criticisms today of sort of a classic understanding of Christ's death on the cross as procuring our forgiveness is that people don't think much about guilt and forgiveness anymore. They may not actually feel guilty. And so often this kind of classic way of talking about the gospel seems maybe almost cruel, like you're telling something bad, or or perhaps archaic or irrelevant because people don't really feel that need anymore. Well, I would suggest to you that the estrangement from God that the Bible says each of us has because of sin is expressed today in experiences like uh, shame and anxiety and loneliness and a lack of purpose and depression. And that when we come to Christ and we're restored to him and overcome by his love and have a sense of our heart turned in on ourself, being turned back towards him, that we then have the resources to deal with more of these common maladies that are so common today. And as kind of a footnote, when I was in college, we would just go up to people and share the gospel with a little track in about five minutes. And I, I don't know if that can happen really anymore, um, because I, I think it takes many weeks uh, of studying the life and teachings of Jesus and the scriptures to even begin to open up what sin really means, what guilt really means, what forgiveness really means, and how it relates to anxiety and depression and shame. So evangelism today probably takes longer than it might have 50 years ago. Now, I would say this too. Someone on the podcast said, you know, they just thought it was cruel to tell people that they were a sinner. Um, And I, I, I understand that it that that has been done distastefully and arrogantly and insensitively. But there's a, a great liberation and freedom, I think, in understanding that I am not whole, that I am broken, that I need help, and I can't do this alone. 
That's what we're saying when we confess our sins. So actually, I think done correctly, this understanding of guilt and sin actually is quite freeing and quite hopeful. Well, while Peter was saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And the believers from among the circumcised who'd come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles, for they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. And then Peter baptizes them. This is known as the Gentile Pentecost. In Acts 2, the Holy Spirit fell on the Jews, affirming that they now were a part of the new covenant, a part of the new Israel, the church. And now the same thing has happened to non-Jews, affirming that Jews and non-Jews alike are all part of the new Israel, the church, the new humanity, the one people of God. It's a very powerful moment. Now, I know it's cold. Uh, Just three quick applications. Um, First, while pursuing racial justice is important, it's not the whole gospel. And sometimes I think the church, there's kind of a dialectic in the way that we work out our theology. We might overemphasize one thing, and then maybe we overemphasize another thing. I think it's fair to say that the church has overemphasized individual piety at the expense of social implications of the gospel. That's fair. But sometimes I think we've swung too far the other way in some of these discussions. If you're interested in this at all, uh, a book by Uh, Esau Macaulay called Reading While Black, which is about finding hope in African-American spiritual traditions, uh, is really helpful in sort of teasing this out. And just a quote here, Professor Macaulay says, is it accurate to claim that political liberation is so much the overriding concern of the Old and New Testaments that we can claim that that is the gospel of Christ? Texts such as the Magnificat, that's Mary's song, and passages in the Psalms and Prophets do emphasize the upsetting of social structures, but those same biblical texts call upon the newly freed to repent of their sins and commit to the transformed lives indicative of the change brought forth by the Messiah Jesus. The death of Christ is not merely a critique of the totalizing and oppressive power of the state. It is also, according to a variety of texts, a means of reconciling God and humanity. Second, God really seems to care about crossing racial and social barriers for the sake of the gospel. I mean, you can just see it from the way the book of Acts is constructed. This is by far the longest portion of the book of Acts And it's about crossing social and racial boundaries to bring two estranged groups together into one new humanity. And and that becomes, in a a big way, the center of reflection in the later church. Paul's letters are filled with reflection on this. Um, If you want to do a deep dive, go into Ephesians 2, which talks about what happened In Acts 10, here's just part of it. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were far off, non-Jews, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one, 
and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility that he might create in himself one new man in place of two, so making peace. So God, God really seems to care about creating multi-ethnic, diverse, socially, racially, worshiping communities. It seems to reveal his glory in a special way. Now, when I was in seminary, we were taught something called the homogeneous unit principle. And the, the HU principle means, hey, people come to Christ easiest across similar social and racial lines. So plant a church among suburban white people or urban black people or uh, Hispanic people in a certain rural area. But don't try to mix them all up together. It's too hard. And that is how you grow a megachurch. But that's not God's vision for the church. God's vision for the church is diversity and multi-ethnicity. And, and I, I wonder, I was telling a friend recently, when we, when we move into 5th and Central, hopefully sometime this summer, we don't know yet, it feels to me almost like we're having a, a, planning a church. Uh, kind of like we're starting over again. And I wonder... I wonder what what we might do to open ourselves up to this beautiful vision of multi-ethnic social diversity. I was having a a meal recently with Daryl Arnold, Overcoming Believers Church. We're going to be a mile away from his church. You know, what would it look like if we began to partner more deeply and build richer relationships with uh, our black brothers and sisters on the east side? You know, one of the things you said in your survey this summer is, hey, we want to serve even when uh, we can't meet. And so we had, uh, just for starters, we're going to focus on CARM. And they have a wonderful way of serving at the Area Rescue Mission. And they support volunteers very well. So we had four different uh, times when you could go serve. I hope some of you got to do that. I, I served breakfast yesterday morning. And 165 meals, they do that three times a day, 365 days a year. <laughs> That's part of the gospel, isn't it? And I found myself looking out uh, at the breakfast room and wondering, our church is two blocks from here. Could these people be a part of all souls? Could some of them? Would, Would we be the kind of church where we could have that kind of diversity? I hope so. Well, third and last, I think this story teaches us to pay attention to the small stuff. You know, I I guess they didn't have newspapers in the first century, but if they had, they would have been about Caesar and Herod and what was happening in Rome and all the big activities in Jerusalem around the temple and all these things, because that's where all the power was. But when God is writing history, He talks about a soldier that has a vision and a fisherman that has a dream who both meet together and encounter Jesus. And it comes out of spending time in prayer and responding simply to what you hear. That's what this whole story is about. Two guys who are both in prayer and they respond 
to the call to move towards each other. And here's why I think that's significant. And I, you know, I hope you weren't hoping for a sermon that makes sense of where our country is and the election and all, because <laughs> I can't give it. I don't know where we are. I don't know where we're going. And I think it'll be a mess for a long time. So we better just get used to it. But, uh, yeah, there's, there's some hope for you. But no, here's the hope. I think we're fooling ourselves if our whole goal right now is to listen to every last news show to figure out what the latest lawsuit means and all of that, because most of us can't control any of that. No matter what happens in Washington, no matter whether there's whatever happens, what you can do is love well here. That's the illusion of media, is that that stuff really matters, so I'm going to spend hours and hours and hours on it. No, 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 no. You don't have any control over that. If you do, use it, pursue it. Most of us don't have any control over that. You know what you have control over? Whether or not you pray tomorrow. Whether or not you respond when the Spirit nudges you. Whether or not you extend hospitality. Whether or not you cross a racial boundary. Whether or not you're generous. I really think, and we're going to think a lot about this in Advent, about hope, and, and how do you find hope in times like this. Kind of a preview, you don't get lost in the big headlines. You don't worry so much about what Caesar's doing. There is nowhere in the entire New Testament where there's a tweet about what Caesar just said. It's like they just don't care. Oh, and they knew, too. They knew what was going on. What they care about is local love, compassion, hospitality, generosity. And if we lean into those things, brothers and sisters, we will be okay no matter what happens. Let's pray. Lord, you are the God of all hope. Our hope is not in who is in office. Our hope is living out of the vision and values and belief you've given us. That is where we find hope. Lord, we do pray for peace. We do pray for justice. We do believe the gospel is both and and not either or. We get that. It's big. It's small. It's personal. It's corporate. Yes, yes, yes. We believe all of that. But today, whether we're listening here on a chilly November evening or we're, we're watching it, God, help us turn away from the idol and illusion that we can control our destiny by consuming media. Return us to the simple practices of our faith, acting justly, loving mercy, worshiping, praying. We have dominion over very small areas of our lives, 
Help us be faithful shepherds of that dominion. We ask all of this in your name. Amen.